Now, I'm very grateful to Dr. Goyette for uh, really entrusting me to give this lecture today. Um, it's really my, it's, well, it's my first lecture on this stage. It's my first lecture to the entire college, and, and it's my first lecture in the St. Vincent de Paul lecture series. Um, St. Vincent is a saint I have a close connection to um, because his feast day happens to be on my birthday, which is exciting. Um, it happens to be on my wife's birthday as well. Okay, now I can get rid of pages six and seven. <laughs> I, I really consider it a great honor to be invited and to be entrusted to give this talk. Um, there is a long and distinguished list of uh, those who have given this talk before me. They've been my teachers and my colleagues and my friends, and I have a great deal of respect for them as scholars and as Christians. Um, now, you're going to be very comfortable during this lecture, uh, unlike how, the way it was over in uh, St. Joseph's Commons. Back then, you know, the maintenance crew had to tear down all the tables from dinner and, and wait, and you know, we had to set up all the chairs, and it was very uncomfortable, and it was always very hot in late August, and uh, the sound was terrible, so you couldn't hear anything the lecturer was saying anyway. So I can't really, um, I can't really appeal to the sound system or your own discomfort um, as an excuse for your not understanding anything I have to say tonight. So um, you'll, you're going to be able to hear every word I say. Um, you'll be very comfortable doing it. Um, so my only real hope is that um, you're so complacent that you get some good sleep over the next hour or so. Um, I was thinking actually about just getting rid of the talk and because I've got you here as a captive audience. You have to listen to what I have to say. So I was thinking about um, you know, talking about for an hour about how singing slowly at mass is a mortal sin. Um, I think I could present the argument. Um, and then I'm sure Father David would be very happy to hear your confessions afterwards. <laughs> but uh, I guess that wouldn't be very dignified, so the, and it might upset the dean, so I'll just I'll stick with what I have here. Um, I was thinking a lot about what to talk about, and I really felt like I really wanted to stay within my wheelhouse, which is to give something on math mathematics. But um, I remember a, a great friend of the college, Judge Leon Holmes, uh, would always talk about when he came to talk several times. He would always say, well, you know, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to think about? And, and um, he said in choosing a topic, he always thought it best to select one that afterwards we could have a civilized and dispassionate discussion. And he said, around here, that eliminates mathematics right away. Um, so uh, instead of mathematics, I decided to, to think deeply about a subject that, frankly, has troubled me for a very long time, and that's literature. Um, I was late, late in my life in coming to literature. I didn't read Tolkien until I was in my mid-30s. <laughs> well, as long, as long as we're in the confessional, I guess I can admit that I haven't finished all seven books of the Narnia series yet. My kids have read them. It's fine. I'm a, I'm a good father. Um, I read the Iliad for the first time in my mid-20s, and I really I didn't have any idea what it was about. I didn't understand it. I've gradually uh, come to see more clearly its immense importance. Um, I took to the Odyssey a little bit more naturally because I found its story compelling in a way, um, and accessible, and that was, I guess, an early sign of hope for me. Um, but then the Greek tragedies seemed all the same to me. I, didn't, I couldn't distinguish between Sophocles 
and Aeschylus and Euripides, which is a real shame. <laughs> I just didn't have the training. Um, but at least with these books, unlike much of the modern literature I was made to read in high school, I went to a kind of a progressive high school in San Francisco where the, the English teachers thought they were sort of training students to be edgy and go to Berkeley. And, and um, <laughs> I, I didn't understand anything I read there. But at least I understood that these books that I was reading here, even though I didn't, I didn't feel like I had access to them. I knew that they were great books, and I knew that the problem was with me and not the books. And I knew that with some effort and with great teachers, I had hope of making some progress. And so today I really think I have made some progress. Uh, it's been a long time, but I've come to love deeply the works of literature that we read here, all the way from Homer through Flannery O'Connor. Um, so the opening lecture traditionally is on the topic of Catholic liberal education. Uh, that gives us a chance at the college here to focus broadly upon what we do, what we're engaged in here. Um, and so with that in mind, I conceived this lecture as aimed at the freshmen in particular. Uh, we have a lot of freshmen this year, um, so that's, what, half the audience? Um, and so I thought the freshmen would have the most to gain from a reflection on the, the beginnings, the principles of Catholic liberal education. Um, and it also helped me to kind of focus, uh, keep from becoming too abstract and really to, to think about the, the real beginnings of things. The rest of you should definitely stick around, though. Um, I think we can all benefit from returning to the beginnings of things uh, from time to time, and I'm confident that there will be something for all of us here to think about. Uh, the freshman courses are really the ones that the tutors fight over most. Um, we love teaching those classes. We love working with the freshmen and love thinking about the the things that really are the, the, some of the fundamental principles of this education. Um, Dr. Goyat mentioned that these lectures are meant to supplement our classroom discussions. So a lecture ideally is the presentation of an ordered, coherent, focused argument presented without interruption from the mind of someone who understands the subject in question, someone who has a graspable thesis and presents a case in support of it. Now, I'm lecturing outside my own area of expertise, so this lecture will probably deviate somewhat from that ideal just in this respect, that I'm not here to profess something to you that I grasp with complete certitude. Um, this lecture has been an occasion for me to reflect deeply on something that is really at the periphery of my own understanding. And so I hope to have you help me think it through. Maybe in the Q&A afterwards we can have a, a reasonable discussion rather than a kind of ask the expert kind of session, because I'm certainly no expert. Um, so my thesis tonight will be more of a proposal than a position. It'll be more of a proposition, I guess, than an imposition, I'll put it that way. Um, so I offer my thoughts to you tonight in this spirit, and I look forward to talking with you afterwards. Um, Mr. DeLuca told me a story recently about what he believes was the very first comment in the very first seminar ever at this college, in September 1971, which also happens to be the same year I was born, same month I was born, in fact. A student in the opening seminar on the Iliad offered to his section right at the beginning of class that he had been speaking with one of the college's chaplains about Homer, about the Iliad. And this student's comment was this, Father told me this is a great book. I think it's a sick book. 
Now, my gut response to a student who says something like that is to feel sorry for him because it implies that he's just entrusted four years of his education to a school which, in his judgment, has decided to have him waste his time reading sick books. Now, that might be your first reaction to reading, Homer, but I'd like to suggest that you can make a small adjustment in your approach. You can make the decision to trust that your teachers, along with centuries of tradition, suggest that reading Homer is precisely the place to begin a liberal education, at least the literary part of it. So I hope my remarks tonight might make it easier for some of you to make that small adjustment. The very best thing you can do is to trust that you are being given the best books or something not very far away from the best books. And fight the temptation to occupy, occupy your mind always with the question, why are we reading this book? That kind of question doesn't have a place in the classroom discussions at all because the discussions at least tentatively presume that what we're reading is worth reading. But you will certainly at times naturally wonder what's great about this or that book. Uh, and everyone, due to their individual constitution and their upbringing, their education, will probably exhibit a variety of intellectual temperaments. So what I have to say tonight is meant to address everyone in some way, but it'll perhaps most forcefully address those whose intellectual temperament or their reason for coming to this college, those who, who incline to want most of all to read the books in this program that touch most directly on the Catholic faith. The Bible, first and foremost, then the biblical exegetes and commentators, the wise doctors of the church who work out the biblical mysteries and sacred theology, St. Augustine, St. Anselm, St. Thomas Aquinas. This is a noble orientation to have as a Catholic student. It recognizes the place of sacred theology as queen of the sciences, that is, that theology is a knowledge of the highest things, and it's that to which the other sciences or branches of knowledge are in some way ordered. However, it can become unclear to such students how it is that books outside the study of theology bear on or are ordered to the understanding of God. In fact, some might find that some books appear to be directly opposed to their theological studies. I came across a concrete expression of this sentiment some years ago when a very intelligent and very pious student asked me during the first semester of his freshman year, we're a Catholic college, right? Why do we spend so much time reading and discussing books about the pagan gods? So it struck me then and continues to strike me now that this is a profound question with practical and theoretical implications. Practically, in some sense, the freshmen are facing this question right now as they read through the Iliad. And they'll continue to read and hopefully enjoy the stories involving the Greeks and their gods for most of this year, and it will continue on into the beginning of next year with the Romans. Now, nowadays, we usually count these books, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the tragedies, the comedies, not as theology or even mythology, really, but as literature, which we sometimes call by the more ancient name of poetry. Um, I'll use literature and poetry more or less interchangeably throughout this talk. I know they're not exactly coextensive, and there's lots to be lots to say about the, the difference, but for the sake of what we're doing right now, literature and poetry will mean mostly the same thing for us. I think by nature, most of us tend to take a real delight in these books. 
but I think some of us wonder whether we should. Okay, so this has been a long introduction to the real topic of my talk, and I hope, I hope tonight to, to begin to provide some kind of answer to my students' question and questions related to it. Why do we Christians care so much about the books of Greek and Roman literature? Why do we read books that we read here, these books that present a bizarre, uh, some might be tempted to say blasphemous, picture of divine beings? The subtitle of my talk what has Athens to do to, with Jerusalem really presents the same question rhetorically. Uh, this, these are the words of uh, Tertullian. This is a famous quotation from Tertullian. Now, he was speaking mostly in the context of Greek philosophy, but the question is just as apt in the context of Greek literature, it seems to me. How can Greek literature coexist alongside theological studies in the education of a Christian? Now, Tertullian is not alone among the church fathers in raising this question. St. Augustine, after all, goes as far as to suggest that the pagan gods are not merely neutral fictions, but, in fact, demons in disguise. The gods of the nation, the nations, are idols, says the psalm. Now, okay, I was asked a few times this week about the main title of this talk, um, so I'll explain it briefly. In the Summa Theologiae, our patron and teacher, St. Thomas Aquinas, presents five arguments for the existence of God. These are usually called the quinque vie, or the five ways. Uh, the seniors know that the five ways are found in an article very near the beginning of the first volume of St. Thomas's master work. The title of that article is Whether God Exists. And in Latin, that title is On Deus Sit, Whether God Exists. So in the title of my talk, I'm asking the same question, but oh, so cleverly replacing the word Deus, God, with the name Zeus, Zeus, I guess you have to say. It's only off by one letter, pronounced differently. So why am I interested in whether Zeus exists? Well, I think it bears at least rhetorically on the very same question we're investigating. After all, my student's question was, why do Christian students read books about Greek gods? After all, in Catholic education, we aim at understanding. That is, understanding the truth. And we do so through reading books. And we propose to read many important books that feature the pagan gods prominently in and around the main narrative. So it must be that somehow we think that reading these books ultimately serves our knowing the truth about something or other. My students' question must have been motivated by something like this. How can reading books about beings that seem not to exist at all lead us to truth about reality? Or even worse, what about beings that purport to be the best beings, that is, gods, but hardly even seem to be good at all, much less the best? So the name Zeus in my title is meant to signify not just the one god Zeus, but really the entire pagan pantheon. But why should the question whether Zeus exists or whether the gods exist be a question for a Catholic, really? Don't we hold by faith that there's only one God? And we use reason to argue to that same conclusion when we study the Preamble Fidei of St. Thomas. It seems to follow from that fairly directly that the gods of the pagans don't exist. Or if the beings named exist in some way, those beings cannot be gods. 
We should see right away that the reason we ultimately give to account for this will have to be even more general than the reasons we would have to give for reading about the gods. It might be that these gods are the only supposedly fictional beings whose presence in literature causes offense to our pious sensibilities, but perhaps conscientious readers of literature should also take issue with Homer's harpies, Shakespeare's fairies, Swift's yahoos, Tolkien's ents and orcs, and Marvel's superheroes. How could reading about fictional races and monsters give us insight into the truth about reality? And why stop there? Even the stories told about men in literature are fictional. The men we read about don't exist at all. So isn't literature just one big lie? It seems that whatever we say to answer this question about reading of pagan gods will ultimately also have to answer the question, why do we study literature at all? That is, how can mere stories, mere fictions, that, that which did not happen, ever hope to give us insight into truth about what does happen in reality? The great Irish poet Seamus Heaney says uh, this to give our question a little bit of focus. Now I'm quoting Seamus Heaney here. It is precisely this masquerade of fictions and ironies and fantastic scenarios that can draw us out and bring us close to ourselves. The paradox of the arts is that they are all made up and yet allow us to get at truths about who and what we are or might be. Now, Seamus Haney doesn't give a reason for his confidence in the ability of the arts to, to reach these truths. In fact, by calling it a paradox, he might be implying that he doesn't think a reason can be given. Another 20th century literary critic, Northrop Fry, whose works I will use liberally in this talk, puts it this way, quoting Fry now, the kind of problem we have to tackle is that what we meet in literature is neither real nor unreal, end quote. I think almost anyone who has experience with literature knows that what Seamus Heaney and Northrop Fry say is right. That to call something fiction is not the same as to imply that it's not true. So our task then is to see if there's an account of how this can be. So up to now, all we've done is frame the question. The rest of this lecture is an attempt to work out an answer. I propose to make the case in line, with, in line with the claim of the Blue Book, which is the founding document of this college, how it is that, I'm going to quote from the Blue Book now, the greatest works of literature present or imply profoundly important views of human life and of reality as a whole, end quote. In fact, I might put my case a little stronger than that. I hope to show that there is indeed a way in which we can say that the stories told by the poets including those about the pagan gods, are real. I should be upfront in saying that some of what I have to say tonight are things I've thought on my own, uh, but much of what moves me is what others more thoughtful than myself have said before me. Uh, I've drawn upon ancient, medieval, and contemporary poets and critics, as well as upon what I've learned from my benevolent and wise teachers and colleagues here at the college. Uh, I'll try to cite my sources whenever it's not too tedious to do so, but uh, just know that uh, sometimes I'll be quoting without attributing, and if anybody wants to know what, where I got stuff, I'd be very happy to 
show you afterwards. So thus far, what we've done is we've broadened our question to something very, very general. We've moved from the original question, why should students read books about Greek gods, to something more like, is literature true? Or even better, what kind of thing is literature? If we can think about an answer to this broader question in the right way, we should be then able to respond to the original, more narrow question as well. So expressed like this, we have what sounds like a very simple question. What is literature? But of course, the simplest questions are often, at the same time, the hardest to answer and the most important to ask. Volumes and volumes have been written on this subject. I don't pretend to be the first one to have ever asked this question. And there's obviously not much, uh, there's obviously, if there is uh, therefore obviously not a question, this question cannot be answered to anyone's satisfaction in an hour. 35 minutes. <laughs> I can only hope to, to provide the most basic sketch of a possible answer. For the beginning of an answer, we can look to what our masters have to say on the subject. Two of our principal teachers, Plato and Aristotle, don't seem to agree with one another about the nature and function of literature. Now, I say it seems because it's not always obvious that what is said in the Platonic dialogues is representative of Plato's own position. The dialogues are like little philosophical dramas where Plato puts words into the mouths of a variety of characters who range from the foolish to the wise. If he ever does speak in his own voice, he most likely does so through the mouth of his own teacher, Socrates, or perhaps through another wise man like Timaeus, or a prophetess like Diotima. Aristotle's works, on the other hand, at least the ones that we have, are all treatises as opposed to dialogues, and so we can usually be confident in taking what he says at face value. If we ignore for now the trouble with interpreting Plato, that's a big question, <laughs> um, but at least we can take the clearest statements of Socrates about literature at face value, for now. It seems that Plato and Aristotle still appear to have some difference of opinion about what literature is and what its relation is to truth. Now, Socrates makes various cases for the harmfulness of literature through the Platonic corpus, uh, but he does so probably in the most sustained way in Book 10 of the Republic, where uh, the most important arguments are probably reducible to two, as far as I can tell. First, Socrates contends that literature imitates things which are themselves imitations of things that truly exist. I suppose he means that what truly exists are what he would call the forms or ideas, and that what we see and experience in this life, what we think of as real, are only imitations or copies of these forms. And then literature, since it imitates what we experience here, is not only removed, but doubly removed what is, from what is most true or real. And to that degree, it lacks truth in itself. Plato also has Socrates argue that literature, literature has a sort of moral distance from the truth, if I can speak that way, since it, now I'm going to quote from uh, Book 10 of the Republic, it fosters and waters our passions when they ought to be dried up, and it sets them up as rulers in us when they ought to be ruled, so that we may become better and happier instead of worse and more wretched, end quote. So Socrates seems to think, at least in the presentation here, that reading literature makes men morally worse and not better. 
I don't pretend that that's the last word from Plato on literature, but I use that to introduce a position that's very, uh, very pervasive throughout the Middle Ages, especially in Christendom, for the case against literature. Uh, a fellow named Conrad of Hearsaw was a 12th century German Benedictine monk, and he wrote that a poet was a fictor, which is a Latin word related to our word fiction. A fictor could just mean a maker, a divisor, a creator, but Conrad goes on to indicate that he means by this word something much more insidious, like a liar. He says that the poet, I'm quoting Conrad here now, either speaks falsehood instead of truth or mingles the true with the false, end quote. Further, he says that in poetic fables, words often do not have any significant, any significative force at all, but are, quote, sonum tantum modo vocis, the mere sound of the voice. Giovanni Boccaccio, uh, the famous early Renaissance poet and sort of a proto-literary critic, collected many of these medieval arguments from his contemporaries and predecessors, and he presented them in a wonderful 15-volume tome entitled The Genealogy of the Gods of the Gentiles. The first 13 volumes are the genealogy, and the last two volumes are his literary criticism. I'd like to read what Boccaccio puts forth as the sort of core of the charge against poetry, because it's really wonderfully put. He's, a, he's not just a critic, he's a poet, as I said. Quoting Boccaccio. It's a little bit of a long quote. The opponents of poetry say that poetry is absolutely of no account, and the making of poetry is a useless and absurd craft. They say that poets are tale-mongers, or in lower terms, liars, that they live in the country among the woods and the mountains because they lack manners and polish. They say besides that that their poems are false, obscure, lewd, and replete with absurd and silly tales of pagan gods, and that they make Jove, who was, in point of fact, an obscene and adulterous man, now the father of gods, now the king of heaven, now fire or air or man or a bull or an eagle or similar irrelevant things. In like manner, poets exalt to fame Juno and infinite others under various names. Again and again they cry out that poets are seducers of the mind, prompters of crime, and to make their foul charge fouler, if possible, they say they are philosophers' apes, that it's a heinous crime to read or possess the books of the poets, and then, without making any distinction, they prop themselves up, as they say, with Plato's authority, to the effect that poets ought to be turned out of doors, nay, out of town, and that the muses, their mumming mistresses, as Boethius calls them, being sweet with deadly sweetness, are detestable and should be driven out with them and utterly rejected. That's Boccaccio's case against literature. It's not his case. It's his presentation of the, 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 the opponents of literature, the opponents of poetry. So put this way, this is quite an indictment of literature as a whole, and some medieval Christians took this point of view very seriously. Boccaccio, however, was a great defender of literature, and eventually, in this same book, he works out a point-by-point -point defense against these arguments over the course of several chapters. Now, before presenting some of what Boccaccio has to say on behalf of literature, 
I'd like first for us to try to reason out a little bit more what kind of thing literature is. So turning now to Aristotle. He does agree with what we said that Plato said about one thing at least. Aristotle places literature within the realm of imitation right away, right at the beginning of his treatise on poetry, the poetics, which the freshmen will read in January, I think. In this work, Aristotle lays out what really is the canonical argument for why we delight in poetry and how it is that its effects on us, or at least can be, beneficial. Aristotle has much to teach us in this treatise, but I'll focus on one thing, what I think is the most relevant text, at least to our investigation today. I'm going to quote Aristotle at a little bit of length here. The poet's function is to describe not the thing that has happened, but the kind of thing that might happen. That is, what is possible as being probable or necessary. The distinction between historian and poet is not in the one writing prose and the other verse. You might put the work of Herodotus in verse, and it would still be a species of history. It consists really in this, that the one describes the thing that has been, and the other a kind of thing that might be. Hence, poetry is something more philosophic and of graver import than history, since its statements are of the nature rather of universals, whereas those of history are singulars. By a universal statement, I mean one as to what such or such a kind of man will probably or necessarily say or do, which is the aim of poetry. That's the end of the Aristotle quotation. This is a very hard passage. Um, and it's hard for more than one reason. The first problem here is that Aristotle seems to say that uh, something that it's difficult to square with his definition of poetry earlier in the treatise. How can poetry or literature be both an imitation on the one hand and a description of the kind of thing that might be on the other hand? Imitation is copying what Greeks called what the Greeks called uh, mimesis. Generally, uh, when we take when we say that. Uh, sorry, generally when we say that someone imitates or copies something, we mean they take something previously seen or experienced and reproduce it, or some aspect of it, in some way. But a description of what might be or what is likely to be doesn't seem to be imitative in quite this way, because something that does not yet exist cannot be copied. So in other words, what exactly is it that literature is imitating, and how does it do so? That's the first problem. The second problem is that it's not easy to see what he might mean by saying that poetry is more philosophic and of graver import than history. For example, is it obvious to say that Jane Austen's Emma is more philosophical or of graver import than, say, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War? It's not obvious to me. What would it even mean to say that it was? And how universal is the claim? Now, it seems to me there's two keys in what Aristotle says, that if we take them together, we can work out some understanding of what he must mean. The first key is that what he says about literature is, quote, that its statements are of the nature of universals, whereas those of history are singulars, end quote. Now, in his logical works, what Aristotle normally means by universals are words or concepts that can be said of or applied to many opposed to universals, are singulars, which can be applied only to one. So anything that history has to say, Aristotle claims, 
is only able to be said about one man, Alcibiades, or one city, Athens, or one event, the Sicilian expedition. What literature has to say, even though it seems at first to be about one man, say Oedipus, or one city, Thebes, Aristotle claims is in fact said about such or such a kind of man, of which there might be many, or such or such a kind of city, of which again there might be many. But not so fast. In logic, we learn that a universal comes from somewhere. That is, it's something that's been drawn from many individuals previously sensed or experienced. What I mean is that reason forms universal concepts of things of which a man has experienced many individuals. So a man comes across, for example, an animal for the first time. Let's say it's a platypus. And he doesn't know what to think about this thing. Then he sees another animal. Now, the second animal happens also to be a platypus. But the man doesn't grasp right away that they're the same kind of thing because he doesn't know what one is. But he does notice that the second one has some similarity to the first. Maybe it's larger. But it's generally the same kind of thing. Then he sees another similar animal. It's another platypus. But maybe this one's darker colored than the other two, um, but it's the same in enough in other ways to identify things that are the same among them all. Eventually, with enough experience of platypuses, he gains enough experience with these individuals that he's able to abstract, that is to draw out from the individuals what is common to them. The thing that the intellect has abstracted is now the object of the man's understanding. And any time he comes across another platypus, he can identify it as one of those and call it by the name platypus, because he's gathered some, something about what all these platypuses have in common from having experienced many of them. That's what Aristotle means by universal in logic. Is this the same kind of thing that's going on when Aristotle says that poetry is universal as well? Well, the second key, what I think is the second key to what he, under, what he says here might be helpful in deciding this. As applied to literature, he says, quote, by a universal statement, I mean one as to what such or such a kind of man will probably or, nece or necessarily say or do. I suppose this means that Sophocles conceives the character of Oedipus, for example, in such a way that he makes him say and do the sorts of things that a man like Oedipus, or perhaps even many men like Oedipus, would be likely to do. Okay, so thus far, Aristotle's meaning of universal in poetry seems to bear the notion of application to many, just like it does in logic. But there's this difference. As we just saw in logic, the universal which is predicable or applicable to many is drawn from the experiences of many individuals in the past, like the platypuses, and only then becomes predicable or applicable to many similar instances to be encountered in the future. This raises the very important question, and it's really one that will occupy the remaining part of this lecture, or at least most of it. What is the source or origin of the poetic universal? Where does it come from? Does the poet draw upon something from which to abstract the poetic universal, just as the intellect, when it comes to know a universal in logic, abstracts it from individuals sensed or experienced? It seems at first the poet might be able to do this. That is, in order to represent a certain kind of man, or a kind of city, or a kind of event in a story, he might draw upon his own particular experiences of men and cities and events and abstract something common from them to make universals. 
And I'm sure this is indeed part of the process of coming to the so-called poetic universal. But there are some problems with this. It seems that if what Seamus Heaney said was right, the insights available to the readers of literature are deeply profound. They are about, as Heaney said, quote, who and what we are and who we might be. Now, such insights, and especially insights about divine beings and divine things, would seem to be greater than any one man could possibly be able to abstract and understand in one lifetime out of his own individual experiences in the world. So it seems that we must look elsewhere if we want to fill out our account of the source of poetic insight. Now this question about poetic insight is an age-old question and there have been many attempts to answer it. Cicero, for example, said this, I'm quoting Cicero, while other arts are matters of science and formula and technique, poetry depends solely upon an inborn faculty. It is evoked by a purely mental activity and is infused with a strange supernal inspiration. End quote. Part of the received form in epic poetry is to invoke at the outset the aid of the muses, the goddesses of poetic inspiration. We see this in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Lucretius, Milton's Paradise Lost. All the works that we read that aim at the epic form have this in some way. So the poets themselves seem to corroborate Cicero's account. That is, they view their own poetic insights really as not their own at all, but coming from a sort of divine inspiration. Plato says in the dialogue of the Ion, quote, not by art do they utter these things, but by divine influence, end quote. I find this to be a compelling account. The most evidently creative people I've ever known or have read about often find it difficult to account for what arises in them. They only know that something stirs them from within and must find expression in their art. This is what C.S. Lewis says on the matter. Quote, in the author's mind, there bubbles up every now and then the material for a story. It invariably begins with mental pictures. It is a thing inside him pawing to get out. It's like being in love. Boccaccio, by the way, thinks that the number of men who are truly poets is very small indeed. The rest of us, who are not artists, not poets, are really not in a position to judge this claim about divine inspiration from our own experience. But I think we do recognize in general that all artists, that artists of all sorts, including poets, painters, sculptors, composers, and all the rest, are special geniuses who have been given a vision perhaps only a terribly muddy vision, but a real interior look into the great mysteries. We don't have any real idea what these artists are up to. How could we? Most of the time, they don't either. Take composers as an example. What are they doing? What do they see that makes them direct the orchestra to make those combinations of sounds? Now, sure, we can analyze music on principles of pitch and rhythm, harmony and melody, and give some sort of rational account of the sounds themselves. But no amount of music theory or analysis can ever ultimately account for the genius or intent behind great music. 
All great artists are sort of like mystics in this way. It has for some reason been given to them to mediate between the knowable world, that is what we grasp by experience and come to know by science on the one hand, and something like what Hegel calls the absolute on the other hand, the mysterious ground of all being, the great beyond to which we, through our reason, don't seem to have any access at all, which appears to us at first something like chaos itself. True artists and mystics alike seem to have some passage to what is unknown but not unknowable, and they mediate access for the rest of us. So that's divine inspiration, one possible solution to the source of poetic insight. Another way to account for poetic insight might be this, that poets supplement their own personal experiences in life with experience gained from what they themselves have read in other great poets. This makes more plausible the vast scale of what poets seem to be able to access. What I mean is that if one poet or author, say Homer, is by some means able to gain insight into universal truths and express them poetically, another poet might parlay the insights gained through his encounters reading Homer and re-express them with his own creative additions and interpretations. And if poets do this, in fact, and have been doing this over the course of the thousands of years of human storytelling, then there could, in fact, be a vast amount of material from which they might be able to abstract poetic universals. I think this is in part what some critics mean when they say that a drama is acted out in a particular cosmos. For example, that Homer provides the cosmos for the Greek tragedians, while Dante provides the cosmos for the action of Shakespeare's plays. Poets are seldom the sole creative mind behind their own works. The same stories are told and retold. Shakespeare's genius, for example, is, not, is often not the genius of invention, but the genius of expression. In many, if not most of his plays, he recrafts stories taken from medieval tradition or from other dramatists, both contemporary and classical. Now, there's another related possibility for the source of the poetic universal. Literary critics have spent a great deal of effort identifying common themes, plots, and characters in poetic works. The great Samuel Johnson intended to write a book in order, and I'm quoting him, to show, actually I might be quoting Boswell here, to show how small a quantity of real fiction there is in the world, and that the same images, with very little variation, have served all the authors who have ever written, unquote. Goethe, following this same line of thinking, wrote that the Italian playwright Carlo Gazzi, quote, maintained that there can be but 36 dramatic situations. The French writer Georges Polti worked out these 36 in his book called, surprisingly, 36 Dramatic Situations. An English critic named Christopher Booker wrote a book about 15 years ago called The Seven Basic Plots, where he argues for even more common elements that allow him to reduce Pulte's number from 36 to 7. About 50 years before that, an English critic and poet named Robert Graves wrote a poem. Here's the first couple lines of his poem are this, quote, There is one story and one story only that will prove worth your telling, end quote. This same author, Graves, later writing as a critic rather than as a poet, put together a book called The White Goddess, 
where he presents an extended and very difficult argument that all true poetry is ultimately rooted in episodes surrounding the ancient cult ritual of a white goddess and her son. One story and one story only. Northrop Frye, in commenting on Graves' book, said that the even more fundamental story underlying all literature, as far as he can tell, is, quote, the story of loss and regaining of identity. I'll have more to say about what Fry means by this later. Along this general line of thinking, that is, that poetic insight is able to be analyzed or reduced into a small number of sources, we can add the thought of Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung. In an essay called On the Psychology of the Unconscious, which the seniors will read in March, uh, Jung wrote this, quoting Jung. There are in every individual, besides his personal memories, the great primordial images, the inherited possibilities of human imagination as it was from time immemorial. The fact, that the fact of this inheritance explains the truly amazing phenomenon that certain motifs from myths and legends repeat themselves the world over in incidental forms. I have called these images or motifs archetypes. End quote. Now, Jung goes on to explain that these archetypes exist in a part of the human psyche called the collective unconscious, which he claimed is commonly accessible to all men. Now, Jung, in proposing his theory of archetypes, is trying to account for something that he encounters in his practice as a psychoanalyst. His therapeutic approach aims at curing neuroses over the course of many individual sessions with a therapist by uncovering his patients' hidden thoughts and noticing patterns in their dreams. Jung's motivation, however, is quite different from what we're doing here with literature, though there is some overlap. Our interest in archetypes in literature is not necessarily psychologically motivated in quite the way that Jung's is. He seems to posit, as far as I can tell, and without providing any real cause or mechanism, the existence of the collective unconscious, the soul's place of archetypes. He thinks that it must exist because he discovers these basic patterns over and over in the minds of his patients. I think, however, that we can, in our literary analysis, retain the rich and fruitful idea of archetypes without having to subscribe wholly to Jung's philosophy of the human soul. While Jung notices repeated patterns in the hidden thoughts and dreams of his patients, which patterns point to the existence of psychological archetypes, so, literary critics notice repeated patterns in stories and their elements, in plots, characters, themes, symbols, etc., that point toward literary or, or poetic archetypes. Okay, so what are some examples of archetypes in literature? Well, we notice that when we read ancient stories, like those of Moses and Perseus, as well as when we read modern stories, like Oliver Twist and Superman, that all of our heroes in these stories seem to manifest the archetype of the mysterious origin. We see the archetype of the epic journey of heroes in Homer and Virgil and the Bible and Dante, as well as in Melville and Tolkien. Oedipus, Icarus, and Lear all have archetypically tragic falls from grace, and so does Walter White. And these, ob these are obvious likenesses, relatively easy to identify. If we look even more carefully, we see even subtler patterns in stories that seem to have nothing in common at first blush. If I tell you that I read a story with a crafty, ingenious hero, 
who gets out of tricky situations with disguises and clever misrepresentation, where there were thrilling exploits that resulted in misfortune, where I saw the unexpected mixed with the commonplace, where I saw friendship come out of catastrophe. If I put it in these ways, I might have just as easily been talking about Huck Finn as the Odyssey. So with enough experience of literature, we can see patterns or archetypes everywhere. That's not to say that each story does not bear its own individual characteristics, or that every story is nothing more than the sum of its archetypes. I think that would sell literature quite short if that were the case. But it's only to recognize commonness in stories where it exists. Remember that the purpose of introducing the notion of archetypes at all here was to identify, um, to, to help in identifying possible sources of the poetic or literary universals that Aristotle mentions. Now note that I said that I think there's some overlap between psychological and literary uses of archetypes. What I mean by this is that there are occasions when a literary archetype might account for a psychological reality. So take, for example, the archetypal, fall, archetypal story of the fall, like the Genesis story in Eden, for example, but considered from a merely literary perspective for the moment. In stories like this, the likes of which there are many in ancient mythology, Jung says there is a psychological truth expressed as well. When men become self-conscious, they get thrown, as it were, out of their internal paradise, their walled garden, their Eden. They find themselves thrust suddenly into the world and into history, a place where there is pain in childbirth, where you're dominated by your spouse, where you have to toil harder than any animal to make a living. And because you're aware of the future, you have to sacrifice present goods for that future. You constantly know that you're going to die, and you become aware that humans don't fit well into the natural world. These are all eternal truths about the human condition that everyone experiences upon becoming self-aware. And these are all brilliantly expressed in the stories about the fall. And in fact, more germane to our subject, it's not too difficult a task to identify the Greek gods themselves with interior phenomena as well, or at least the principal gods involved in the Homeric and other works we read here. Of the 12 Olympians, or major deities of the Greek pantheon, there's a balance between the masculine and the feminine, six of each. The principal masculine god, of course, is Zeus, the king and father, while the principal feminine deity is Hera, the goddess of motherhood and marriage. The remaining gods and goddesses of the pantheon or of uh, Olympus preside over various aspects of natural, human, and spiritual affairs and can signify corresponding realities. It's possible to read many episodes of their involvement, involvement in the affairs of men as moments of heightened powers of soul, especially as seen seen as aided by divine help. So, for example, Poseidon, god of the sea, is particularly determined to prevent Odysseus from achieving his homecoming. The divinity that comes to his aid is Athena, feminine, the goddess of wisdom and foresight, who aids his attempts at overcoming the dark, blind, and unfeeling power of Poseidon. Under Athena's instruction, Odysseus becomes more and more self-aware and self-controlled until he is finally prepared by her divine assistance to face the suitors who threaten his home. Now, the reason I said that this account of poetic insight was related to the previous one, namely the one that recognizes that poets or authors take their material from one another, is evident. If copies of archetypal characters 
plots, images, and symbols, etc., are found everywhere in literature, it seems likely that they come ultimately either from the same sources or from one another or from some combination of both, as well as from, as from the poet's own experiences and perhaps mixed with a little divine inspiration as well. Fry says that all literature has what he calls, quote, a pedigree, and we can trace its descent back to the earliest times. So I'd like to look briefly at some of the early myths. The earliest structured stories usually comprise the literature that arises most proximately out of myth. The word myth comes from the Greek word muthos, which can sometimes just mean story or plot. It doesn't mean false story in this context. Um, but it's often used to mean something like a primordial or originative story told by a culture before its civilization becomes very developed. These stories almost always involve gods and demigods. They narrate fundamental events, often intended to explain nature or natural events or outline religious practice. Generally, myth is part of the oral tradition of a culture and only later gives rise to the earliest oral and written poetry with any kind of recognizable poetic structure. So where do the myths come from? Well, that's a much harder question. It may be one to which we can only give likely answers. Boccaccio said in his work, The Genealogy, quote, if you inquire under what sky and in what period and by whose agency poetry first came to light, I hardly trust my ability to answer. Fry suggests that just as a, music, a musician makes a composition out of layers and layers of repetition and patterns and variations, a poet also builds a story out of layers and patterns and repetition. And just as later authors find the same patterns or archetypes repeated in the stories that they themselves have read, the earliest poets found the basis of repetition in nature itself. The rising and setting sun, the seasons, and the life and death cycles in the animal world. Bishop Barron, in fact, in, his, uh, in a scene from his television series Catholicism, he was standing, I don't know if you remember this, he was standing in the middle of the Pantheon in Rome, and he said this, quote, the genius of paganism is reverence for the necessity of the rhythms of nature. And so some of the most primitive myths are imitative of the repetitive patterns of nature in this way. These patterns are manifested as stories of gods and heroes who are born, have adventures, find love, experience betrayal, die, and are reborn. Aristotle and St. Thomas even allude to something like this in, quoting, uh, sorry, in the first book of the Metaphysics and the accompanying commentary. Uh, quoting St. Thomas now, uh, among the Greeks... The first who were famous for their learning were certain theological poets, so-called because of the songs which they wrote about the gods. These poets dealt to some extent with the nature of things by means of certain figurative representations in myths. So somehow, poetic insight seems ultimately to be rooted in connection with nature. Now remember that one of the charges against the poets presented by Boccaccio was that, quote, they live in the country among the woods and the mountains. Part of his defense of the poets points out that poets need freedom from the busy crowds, crowds of the town in order to craft their poems uninterrupted by the bustle of the town. And on this point, on this point he quotes Horace. So I'm going to quote a poem of Horace here, six lines. At Rome, amidst its toils and cares, think you that I can write harmonious airs? What then, at Rome, in this tumultuous town, Tossed by the noisy tempest up and down, can I, 
Though even the willing muse inspire, adapt the numbers to the sounding lyre. That's the end of the poem there. And so that's a practical reason that poets might prefer the woods and the mountains to city life. But aside from this, it might be a stronger argument to say that poets need to be close to nature in order to pay attention to the natural rhythms of the world, because the natural world is an inexhaustible source of poetic insight. Interestingly, Plato seems to look at this from the other side. In the Republic, he reminds us that there's an old quarrel between philosophy and poetry. And so at the opening of the dialogue of Phaedrus, Phaedrus himself notes that Socrates is the oddest of men, never setting foot outside the city walls. Socrates' defense, quote, I'm a lover of learning, and trees and open country won't teach me anything, whereas men in the town do. So while the wisdom reached through philosophy is best learned from men, the wisdom reached through poetry is perhaps achieved by listening to the rhythms of the woods and the mountains and the beasts. Okay, big finish. I want to summarize a little bit because we've come a long way. We began by recognizing that we all suspect and to some degree recognize that literature has something to tell us about reality. And we want this to be the case because it deeply pleases us. But we're confused about the way that it which it set, in which it sets about to do so. Where philosophy speaks straightforwardly about its subject matter, literature speaks obliquely in images and figures which do not seem directly to signify the reality that they intend, and therefore might seem to some like a falsehood, especially on the most important matters of spiritual and divine realities. Aristotle accounted for this by showing how poets, though they write about particular characters taking part in particular narratives, are in fact speaking universally. That is, what they have to say is not merely about these characters and these stories, but is really about certain kinds of men and certain kinds of stories, generally speaking. Poets appear to derive their profound insights from some combination of experience in their own lives, experience with the vast wealth of archetypes available to them in the world's literature, and from divine inspiration. There are eternal truths about nature, man, and God that are hidden, shrouded deeply in mystery. These truths are inaccessible to most, and like the truths held by science, episteme, they are unchangeable. But they must be mediated for the rest of us by the poets. Poets and other artists seem to have a mystical access to these truths, with something inside them longing for utterance, I'm quoting Boccaccio here, in strange and unheard of creations of the mind, arranging compositions with unusual interweaving of words and thoughts, veiling truth in a fair and fitting garment of fiction. I love the alliteration there. I know he didn't write in English, but it's still great. <laughs> a fair and fitting garment of fiction. There's actually a long tradition of Christian approbation of using figures and images to communicate eternal truths. St. Augustine, for one, suggests that poetry is indeed a fitting mode in which to speak. He cites Horace and Aesop's fictional fables about talking animals as a source of truth, as well as the manifest use of figures in the Old Testament, my favorite being uh, Augustine cites in the Book of Judges where the trees confer with one another in choosing a king. It's beautiful. Of course, in the New Testament, our Lord himself often taught in parables, using figures and images. 
And of course, the Holy Scriptures end with the fantastical and eschatological poetry of the Apocalypse. Boccaccio goes so far as to suggest that every pagan wise man knew through his own reason that there could be only one God. Even the poets like Homer and Virgil, though they present gods as many, and though and as those who sometimes contend against one another, more often present Zeus as standing clearly above the rest, often giving Zeus himself a knowledge and will that approach those of the true God. In Book 8 of the Iliad, Zeus is able to insist that the other gods refrain from interfering in battle. Quote, so much stronger am I than the gods and stronger than mortals. End quote. He weeps over the hardships of men, never more, never more than over the death of his son Sarpedon, a death which he in fact willed in order to assure the glory of Achilles. In the Aeneid, Anchises prays to him, quote, Omnipotent Jupiter, if prayers affect you, look down upon us, that is all I ask. And again, when Aeneas tells his men that they have suffered hardships before, he presents the famous Dabit Deus His Quoque Finem. God will grant us an end to these sufferings as well. And to the extent that the other gods are given a place in these books, it is, and I'm quoting here Boccaccio, in conformity with the true deity because of their veneration for the particular function in each instance. Such are the pagan poets who, with all their knowledge of the liberal arts, poetry, and philosophy, could not know the truth of Christianity. For that light of the eternal truth, which enlightens every man and was coming into the world, quoting John, had not yet shone forth upon the nations. Not yet had these servants gone through all the earth's bidding, every man to the supper of the Lamb. To the Israelites alone had this, been, had this gift been granted of knowing the true God aright and truly worshiping him. And if pagan poets wrote not the whole truth concerning the true God, though they thought they did, such ignorance is an acceptable excuse. The pagan poets saw deeply into truths about God and managed to express these truths the only way that they knew. Cardinal Newman, in his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, has this to say in agreement. Slightly long quote from Cardinal Newman. What is generally received as Christian truth in its rudiments or in its separate parts to be found in heathen philosophies and religions, are to be found in heathen philosophies and religions, and we might add literature. For instance, the doctrine of a trinity is found both in the East and in the West. So is the ceremony of washing. So is the rite of sacrifice. The doctrine of the, of the divine word is Platonic. The doctrine of the incarnation is Indian. Of a divine kingdom, Judaic. Of angels and demons, Magian. The connection of sin with the body is Gnostic. The idea of new birth is Chinese. Belief in sacramental virtue is Pythagorean. And honors to the dead are a polytheism. Some have said these things are in heathenism, therefore they are not Christian. We, on the contrary, prefer to say... These things are in Christianity, therefore they are not heathen. So in closing, we need not be anxious about our books that contain the action, activities, and thoughts of the pagan gods, at least not in literature, which speaks a language of universal truth. Zeus does exist in a certain respect. He exists as a poetic universal, or as an element of man's psyche as aided by the divine or sometimes even as a participation in the true God, as written by those searching pagan poets, 
who did the best they could to say what they saw about the true divine being. Toward the end of book two on on Christian doctrine, St. Augustine teaches us how we Christians ought to handle the pagan philosophers. And what he said seems to me to be equally applicable to the pagan poets. Quoting St. Augustine, If they have said anything that is true and in harmony with our faith, we are not only to shrink from it, but to claim it for our own use from those who have unlawful possession of it. For as the Egyptians had not only the idols and heavy burdens which the people of Israel hated and fled from, but also vessels and ornaments of gold and silver, in the same way all branches of heathen learning have not only false and superstitious fancies and heavy burdens of unnecessary toil, which every one of us, when going out under the leadership of Christ from the fellowship of the heathen, ought to abhor and avoid, but they contain also liberal instruction, which is better adapted to the use of the truth, and some most excellent precepts of morality, and some truths in regard even to the worship of the one God are to be found among them. Now these are, so to speak, their gold and their silver, which they did not create themselves, but dug out of the mines of God's providence, which are everywhere scattered abroad, and which the Christian ought to take away from them and to vote to their proper use in preaching of the gospel. And so if you love the literature of the Greeks and the Romans, you should not be ashamed to love the omnipotent father of all, whom Homer called Zeus, whom St. Thomas called Deus, and whom we call God.